Thank you, Jackson. Did y'all recognize that tune? Pardon? Probably had to be over a certain age to hear Sweet Beulah Land in that. Mark 10, verses 17 through 31. I'm kind of continuing the theme from this morning about what's important in life. And, and you know, a preacher is preaching to himself so much of the time. And so this is where I'm, I am and what I think about and struggle with. The sermon's entitled, The Danger of Greed, Mark 10, 17 through 31. And this is the story about the rich young ruler who comes up to Jesus. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and said, asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. Do not kill, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have observed from my youth. And Jesus, looking upon him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell what you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. At that saying, his countenance fell, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter began to say to him, Lo, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many that are first will be last, and the last first. The rich young ruler. Let's pray. Father, help us in our relationship with our possessions to order them according to your will to be responsible but not to worship them not to make an idol out of them that would replace you in a position that only you belong so where we are struggling help us where we are in error correct us and confirm Lord your priority in our lives, always in Jesus' name, amen. So a man runs up to Jesus and gushed, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Most teachers recognize this technique, O fount of knowledge, O divine seer, O great wise one. He was gushing and so Jesus first disarms him and he says, why do you call me good? You ever noticed how Jesus doesn't just come out and answer a question, but 
he begins a discussion, a dialogue, a question with a question. Like a good teacher, Jesus calls the man to drop on his own resources, reflect on his own training, and see for himself what he knows and where Jesus needs to work with him. You know the commandments. And indeed he did. And he kept all the commandments meticulously from his youth. He is a good man. He is a sincere and pious man who attempted to live by the rules. And that's exactly why this story is so disarming. It's why it's so frightening. Because he sounds a lot like us. He's a good man. He lives by the rules. But doing so has left him empty. Being good, he's learning, is not good enough. And he sensed that there is something missing in his life, but what? He didn't know what. And for many of us, life is a, a matter of setting goals and achieving them, working hard, accomplishing them, something you have laid out and planned. The man has already met all the goals he had in life. And in that process, he remained his own master, his own judge, his own Lord. So what do you do when you spend your life climbing the ladder of success only to discover at the top that it's leaning against the wrong wall. This is a problem for all of us, but perhaps more so for those who are successful. It says Jesus looked at the man, and it says loved him. The word is agape. He agaped him. He loved him unconditionally, just looking at him. His heart went out to him because he knew he was trying he was not a fraud. He was not a fake. He was sincere and genuine, but he was misdirected, and that's why this story is so disarming. Jesus wants to free this man from the bondage of the law that has enveloped him, and he gives him five imperatives. He says, go, sell, give, come, and follow. And the commands are interrupted by a promise you will have treasure in heaven. Go, sell, give, come, and follow. Jesus wanted to free the man up, but the man didn't hear it that way. Jesus was trying to meet his deepest need, his greatest longing. The man's life appeared to be a dream come true, but there's still a terrible void here. And God was missing from that dream. And the void came because there was an idol located in the center of our his heart where only God can fit. And that idol was so firmly entrenched in his heart that he could not or would not dislodge it. At the words of Jesus, it says he was shocked, his countenance fell, and he went away grieving. The idol had won. Now don't tune me out and think this message only applies to someone else because you see by the world standards, by Jesus' standards, we are wealthy people. And as such, I struggle every time I read this story. It's like my coming to Jesus and asking for an aspirin and him telling me what I really need is radical, life-changing surgery. During this encounter, many of the disciples were not involved in the story because after all, hadn't the disciples given up everything to follow Jesus? Their possessions compared to this Rich men were meager. They were poor. Greed was this man's problem, unlike the disciples who were, who were poor, giving up everything to follow Jesus. 
So up to this point, the disciples are listening to Jesus address the problem that another man standing in front of them has. It's interesting, it's informative, but it really isn't personal to them. It's not crucial, but that's when Jesus, as he always does, when we least expect it, turns it around on them. He turns, it says, he explicitly turns in verse 23 around and looks at his disciples and says to them, how hard it will be for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. What? Huh? Run that by me again? It'll be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I specifically had a professor in New Testament. I, I raised my hand and said, now I understand there's a gate in the, uh, in the temple that's called the eye of the needle. And if you squat down, you can, you can squeeze through it. And the professor said, no. He said, I'm afraid that's the, that's the imagination of a wealthy church. The only way to get through the eye of a needle is the eye of a needle that you sew with. And you don't want to try to squeeze through that. Who among us has not dreamed of being rich? I used to daydream. I remember in, in college, in some years in seminary, every year when uh, the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes came around, I would daydream about how I was going to spend my $10 million. And one year, I actually made up a list of what I was going to do and how I was going to spend it and how much good I was going to bring the world. Good, yeah, I'm still waiting. Who among us has not wondered about the possibility of inheriting a fortune from a long-lost uncle that we didn't know we had? I can handle it, Lord. You can trust me with wealth. Just give me a shot at it. I will use it and invest in ministry and Elsewhere, Jesus is warning his disciples over and over again the danger of gaining the whole world and giving up your soul in the process. And even after such a warning, most people I know would still be willing to take the risk. Have you ever seen an article about how many lottery winners end up bankrupt? It's crazy. If you can't handle money when you have a little, you sure won't be able to handle it if you have a lot. It will handle you. People in the first century were convinced that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. And I think that impression still lingers. I saw a bumper sticker one day that said, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? And another one said, life is a game. Whoever has the most things at the end wins. On the Today Show several years ago, there was a group of people who got together and formed a compact. They vowed, this is kind of interesting, they vowed not to buy anything new for an entire year. They could buy food and toiletry items, but their clothing, their accessories, anything else would not be new. And they were having fun doing it. They were determined not to buy into what the advertisers were trying to hawk off on them. And the retailers in that community were going crazy. They were having compact busters sales to try to lure people into the shop to buy things that they really don't need. But that group was sticking to their guns and they were making a point about how little we can really get by on. For Jesus, and for most people, wealth is an obstacle, a hindrance, a stumbling block to discipleship. Serving God requires both of our hands. It cannot be done when we're holding on to what we own with one hand and trying to hold on to Jesus with the other.
Jesus does not say we should not serve God and mammon. He says you cannot. You cannot. It's a physical impossibility. More often than not, what happens is we don't own our things, and they turn around owning us. I know Ron is, is teaching another course in um, that, what's that called, wealth management, financial peace, and, uh, you know, just to hear what people, the debt that people have coming into that course is staggering, what the average debt is. There was a demon who owned a large box of gold coins that he kept buried in an old house. One day he was ordered to leave that area and go do harm in another part of the world, but he didn't want to leave his wealth unguarded. He would not be able to return for 20 years, so what could he do with that wonderful treasure in his absence? If he hired a guardian, it would cost him. If he left it under a house unannounced, someone might dig it up and discover it. So he came up with an idea. He took his treasure to the home of a miser. And he said, Sir, I want to give you this gift before I leave the country. I've always been fond of you, and I pray you will not refuse my offer. Feel free to spend these gold coins any way you desire. There's but one stipulation. Should you die before me, I am to be your sole heir. The miser agreed to the gift, signed the documents, and the demon departed. Twenty years later, as you might imagine, the demon showed back up to find that the miser had recently passed away, and he found the treasure right where he left it 20 years earlier, and not a single coin was missing. He laughed, knowing that the miser had been a guardian that did not cost him a penny. So what's the moral of the story? Isn't it true that when we hoard things, we're only saving them for the world? But when we give them away, when we use them in ministry, we're giving it to God. And I don't know about you, but I plan on spending a whole lot more time in heaven than I do on earth. And so I want to figure out how to build a nest egg up there. And there's only one bank that wires funds from this world to the next, and that's God's bank. That's the bank of love and mercy and sacrifice. And when I give to God through the church or through a ministry organization, when I help a brother or sister in need, I'm laying up treasures in heaven, and nothing can take that away. That's my ultimate retirement fund. Instead of Social Security, I call it eternal security. And it's drawing more interest right now than any money on any CD or money market ever could. Greed, on the other hand, is demonic. It's idolatrous. You shall have no other gods before me, the commandment declares. And greed tries to replace God with things that money buys. And perhaps the most dangerous aspect of greed in our day is that it has become accepted. And that's what's frightening. A man is offered multi-multi-millions of dollars a year to play a sport, and he gets offended. And he takes it to his, his manager, um, his agent, to go into arbitration and gets more millions. We don't see greed as a sin. We see it as a goal, and if you're really rich, you can be on the lifestyles of rich and famous, and we can watch you on TV and envy you. Greed is in. 
Instead of producing revulsion, it encourages envy. I remember years ago, I was probably in college, watching uh, Michael Douglas in that movie called Wall Street. And he was trying to teach his young protege, Charlie Sheen, the ways of high finance. And Michael Douglas is standing before a stockholders meeting. And he says, greed is good. And he was giving a speech to the stockholders and they were buying in. And I was sitting there listening and I was buying into it too. Yes, greed is good. Yeah, okay, grab as much as you can and hold on to it. But if greed is defined as enjoying more than you need at the expense of someone else, then it's not Christian. Greed is not good. It's a sin. In fact, it's one of the seven deadly sins. So greed ought not be a problem among us or among any who call themselves followers of Jesus. Jesus tells you to root out everything in your life that prohibits you from following him Perfectly, without distraction. In the case of the rich young ruler, it was his possessions. And that's why Jesus told him to get rid of them, because they were like an albatross around his neck that were interfering in his relationship with God. He was hanging on to his possessions. He was obeying all the rules, but there was no love there. And it's only when we hang on to our idols and when we love them more than we love God, that they become a burden. And when that happens, we go away sorrowful, just like this ruler did. But there is a chance for repentance, an opportunity to give up our idols, and Jesus wants it to liberate us, to free us from that weight that entangles us. It's interesting, in Luke's Gospel... And immediately following it, guess what story there is in Luke's gospel? It's the story of Zacchaeus. A man who hears the call of Jesus and who gives up the idol of his life. So there's a contrast between the rich young ruler who cannot or will not and Zacchaeus who does. Jesus is passing through Jericho one day and I heard this story echoing in the halls of our children's wing this morning. And several classes were singing, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. I heard that in a lot of different voices in the children's wing. Jesus is going through Jericho. Zacchaeus is the chief tax collector. He had gotten wealthy by fleecing his own people. He was trying to see who Jesus was because he had heard about him, but he could not because he was short in stature. And he couldn't see over the crowd. So he runs ahead and climbs up in a, what? Sycamore tree. Isn't that an interesting detail? Because Jesus is going to pass that way. And when Jesus comes to the place, he looks up and says, Zacchaeus, you hurry up and come down because I'm going to your house today. And he hurries down and is happy to receive Jesus into his home. And more importantly than into his home, he receives him into his heart. And all who see it begin to grumble and say, he's gone to be the guest of someone who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stands there and he says to Jesus, look, half of my possessions I'm going to give to the poor and if I have cheated anybody, I'm going to pay him back four times as much. And Jesus, 
who knows the heart of Zacchaeus, just like he knew the heart of the rich young ruler, says, Today salvation has come to this man's house because he's a son of Abraham, and the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And the stumbling block in this man's heart has been removed, and he can love God fully. The stumbling block in this man's heart remains, and he went away sorrowfully. Our Lord calls us to rid our hearts of all that binds us, and when we do, as he asks, joy is found when we hear the words, today salvation has come to this house. As he said to Zacchaeus, and you will have treasure in heaven, as he said to the disciples. So there you have the choices, two distinct alternatives. How will you respond to Jesus' claim on your life in that area of your life that you hold most dear? For some of us, it may be our possessions. For some of us, it may be our children. For some of us, it may be our job, our home, our family, our friends. All those things are good, but not if they interfere in your relationship with God. The rich young ruler, Zacchaeus, which will you choose? Let's bow together. Oh God, we believe. Help us our unbelief. We trust. Help us with our distrust. And we love. But help us when we don't. We want you to be front and center in our lives and in our hearts. You and you alone, beside you there is no other. And so come into our hearts, Lord Jesus. I know there's room there because there are other things there that don't need to be and we can clean them out. And when we do, there's room for you. We offer ourselves, our lives, our possessions, our hearts, our all to you. Take them and become Lord over them. And help us to follow you faithfully. And do what you call us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.